Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I wanted to host Torched, not for the salaciousness of the stories, but for the humanness in them. There aren't many people who don't know the name Lance Armstrong, the seven-time winner of the Tour de France, who was later accused of cheating by doping. But few know the finer details. In the media, we get the headlines. We don't get the nuance. But it simply isn't fair, or interesting for that matter, to reduce a person to their worst choice or biggest mistake. And in most cases, it's also unfair to allow their worst moments to erase their finest. Things are rarely black or white, good or evil. As humans, we contain multitudes. Lance is a beast of an athlete, a physiological phenomenon. He also used performance-enhancing drugs. Many know about his cancer diagnosis. Few know how close to death's door he was. He was a savage in the peloton, a take-no-prisoners type of guy, but he put his heart and soul into his cancer foundation. And when he would visit kids stricken with the disease, he told the media to wait outside. He wanted to be intimate and present with them. He went after his enemies and accusers with a fiery wrath, but he fought for his family and his life with the same fierceness. He faced a tough hand in childhood, beat a death sentence, dominated one of the most grueling sports known to mankind. He survived financial ruin and one of the most public takedowns in history. Say what you want about him, but Lance Armstrong has zero quit. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. In almost all the interviews I watched with Lance, the journalist focused on the doping. I wanted to focus on the comebacks. To err is deeply human, and almost none of us escape some sort of fall from grace. I think Lance's story can inspire and inform on how to stage a comeback, how to grow past your mistakes, even when the world doesn't want to let you, and how to ultimately take control of your own destiny. Lance Armstrong, thank you for Molly being on Bloom, Torched. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? <laughs> How's the baby? She's super cute, and she's real demanding. Oh, God. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> wait till they're in high school. You have no idea. You know, the, the thing I want to focus on here is that you are made very differently. You know, like you, <laughs> you are not a normal human being and the amount and the degree of, of comebacks you've had in your life is just astonishing. Mm. And I think that there's something in that that's really useful for people to understand. I mean, you beat what I consider to be significant early childhood trauma. You beat death. You rose to prominence in the most grueling sport on the planet. Then you beat perhaps, you know, one of the most public and severe takedowns <laughs> in human history, truly. And, you know, 
though mistakes were made, I think there's so much to be learned by this. And I just kind of want to go through each of these events and get into it, you know, get into how you survived it and the anatomy of a comeback. Cool. Your mom was 17 when she had you. Yeah. You met your dad once. Eddie Gunderson is his name. Your bio dad. But basically he wasn't around. No, no, he wasn't. No. And I don't know that my mom necessarily wanted him around, frankly. And then she remarried, of course. She remarried Terry Armstrong. Yeah. And I was about three or four then. And tell me about Terry. I haven't seen him in many, many, many decades. But he, he was, yeah, he was just uh, not not a great dude. My mom, my mom went over to to start it off. Just to kind of get into that a little bit, he seemed unreasonable and and maybe abusive. When you think of abusive, you know, be, people define it uh, different ways. And and I mean, I wouldn't, for example, spank my children. I wouldn't touch my children. Right. I, have, I have five children. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. And he came from a different school. You know, the 70s, the norms were a little different. Yeah, for sure. And then your mom left him when you were 15? 15 or 16. I would almost say we left him. Yeah, they split up right after that. It was an interesting time. I was kind of already uh, sort of out of the house. And not in a bad way. I was just, I was doing professional triathlons. I was traveling all over the world. I was financially independent for a 15-year-old, which is pretty rare. But my mom was also my best friend. You know, she cooked for me. She drove me to the races. She was my cheerleader. She was a lot of things. And so we were just good buds. I read your book. I was touched so deeply by this relationship that you have with your mom. It was you and her against the world. Oh, yeah. That's the way she wanted it. (laughs) Yeah, she she has a real fuck em attitude. It's amazing. I mean, yeah, she she kind of wanted it that way. You know, being a 17-year-old young lady in Dallas, Texas. I was born in 71, so she would figured out she was pregnant probably late 1970. You can imagine how popular that decision was in a in a conservative state like Texas, conservative city like Dallas. Mm-hmm. But she she always had this chip on her shoulder mm-hmm. and still does. Yeah. I I mean, she just sounds like an extraordinary woman. And there was a story that just slayed me. I think you were going to prom and you you and your friends rented this limo and she had this like pretty dress that you guys called her prom dress. And you said, mom, put on your prom dress. We're going to prom. And she rode around in the limo with you guys because she probably never got that opportunity, right? Right, Because she was a kid. Really? So I graduated high school when I was 17. She was 34 years old. Wow. When I graduated high school. From what I understand, she's the one that said, look, you're a kid with a ton of energy. You need to get involved in sports. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I tried every sport. Yeah. And and I sucked. I sucked at all the sports you were supposed to do in Texas. (laughs) But I was smart enough to say, to, and also self-aware enough to be like, I'm not, this, this isn't any fun. I'm on the B team on every sport that has a ball. And I'm like, "I, I don't know. I don't feel like a B team dude. I was like, mom, I'm not, I'm not doing this. She's like, well, you better find something to do. <laughs> and so I, I was like, oh, shit. I didn't know how to swim. I mean, I could swim, you know, dog paddle. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I got some buddies on the swim team. What if I tried joining that thing? And you were really good. It's, it's still my true love. And, oh, wow. But I wasn't good at first. I mean, I, I was 12 when I joined the swim team. And I couldn't swim with 12-year-olds. I, was, I swam with, with seven-year-olds. Right. And, and it was, and looking back on it, like, I find it hard to believe that I hung in there because it's, 
No 12-year-old wants to be in the swim lane with seven-year-olds. And all their buddies, by the way, are down in the lane with 12-year-olds and swimming their ass off and for whatever reason hung in there. But you know, a month later, I was in the lane with the eight-year-olds. <laughs> and I just worked my way across that pool. And then how did you get introduced to triathlons? Because that was kind of the next step in, in athletics for you, right? The other sport that I did do, which is another great love of mine, is running. And so I joined the track team and the cross-country team uh, in Plano. I grew up in Plano, Texas. And so I had, I had kind of the anchors of the sport, but I was swimming on the swim team and I was running track and cross-country with the, with the high school team. And I saw an ad for a triathlon. I thought, well, that, that seems pretty interesting. And so I had to find a bike. So I found a bike that, was, that made up the three, you know, obviously the three sports of tri. Yeah, it ended up, the last one to the party ended up being the one that took me on a wild ride. When in this process did you fall in love with cycling? Oh, right away. Right away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. I, so Plano is, of course, now a big city. But back then, it was, a, it was a small suburb of Dallas. So I could get out. I could go north to Allen, McKinney. I could go east out around Lake Levon. I could even go over to Frisco. I'd do stupid shit. I, and I wonder if I can ride to Oklahoma and back. That sounds like a crazy idea. Like, who says, where'd you ride it? To? Oh, to another state. And I got out there and I was like, oh, no. I don't think I, ha I don't think I can get home. And my mom had to come pick me up in another state. I mean, just from the beginning, you're just not a normal competitor. There's a story about you got hit by a car or something and you're in the hospital and you get your mom to break you out of the hospital and well, like, <laughs> and like <laughs> she didn't break me out. She, I got out when they let me out. As the story goes, I was, you know, I was supposed to rest. Right. I had, sti had stitches in my head. I had stitches in my foot. And by the way, the poor lady, all my fault for getting hit. It was like suburban Dallas, you know, these streets are like six lanes across and I ran a yellow and I got five of the six lanes and just, and the, this lady, she had a green light. She, and she went and nailed me. I wasn't wearing a helmet, mm. destroyed my bike, but I can only imagine what she must've thought she killed somebody. Yeah. And, and when she got over there, sees it's a, a 14 year old kid. And so I bust out of the hospital or get out, whatever. <laughs> but doc's like, listen, you got to rest. And I'm thinking, shit. <laughs> I'm not resting. I had a race that weekend. Yeah. I thought, well, let me think about this because I've got these stitches. It's not good. But in the swim, you know, all the competitors wear a swim cap so that they can see people, you know, it's a mass mass start of a you know thousand people. So they can identify people if they're having trouble. I'm like, okay, well, that would be covering the stitches in my head. Check. I'm good there. He'll be fine with that. And then I had them really low on, on my ankle where they were touching my shoe. So I cut out the shoe, <laughs> mo modified the shoe. I'm like, all right, check. I think we're okay. And I was feeling better. Like my leg was really sore from getting, cause I got hit right on the side of my thigh, but I've, I was getting up and around and, and I said, fuck it. I'm racing. <laughs> I got in the race. That story doesn't get told much, but then I won the race. Yeah. <laughs> like you are made different. <laughs> I love this quote from your book. You said, if it was a suffer fest, I was good at it. <laughs> yeah. Still to this day. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I still love the suffer. Yeah. And I wonder what that's about. And we all go through 
periods of, of our lives, as, as you and I both have, I know your story well, and many, many people do, that's what you went through is, is traumatic, and that's suffering. And what I went through in numerous times of my life is suffering, because I don't necessarily love or look back on those times right. as, as like great moments, but I'm more referring to a five-hour bike ride or... Yeah a three mile open water swim in the Bahamas, you know, something where it's just, it's so hard, but you're all alone. I also like to do most of these things alone. It's the thing I loved about swimming because most other sports are somewhat social, right? Mm -hmm. If you go skiing, it, the, the, you're on the lift and it's social. And mm -hmm. if you're riding, I mean, I rode with six people yesterday. It's so people are talking, swimming, nobody can talk to you. The <laughs> only person you can talk to is yourself. Yeah. And, and you can get that with, with, cycling and running if you go alone. And so I, I tend to enjoy that more because I don't get a lot of alone time. Yeah. And so I was, it was always sort of like uh, therapy for me, mm -hmm. free therapy. You know, you get into cycling more exclusively and you start competing locally and then go all the way to worlds and you win worlds, right? How old were you then? I was in 1993. So I was I, I just about turned 22. So I was yeah 21 years old. So I was still doing triathlon and also doing some national team stuff as a junior. In 1989, the junior world championships were in Moscow. And mm. this is before the wall came down. And so I made that team and I'm like, man, I'm, fuck, I'm definitely going. I want to see what this place is all about. It started to take me around the world. Yeah. And then turned pro a few years later, won the world's my, basically my first year as a pro in, in 93 in Oslo, Norway. Crazy to think that, you know, next year will be the 30 year anniversary of that. And your mom was there. My mom was there. Oh yeah, she she came to a lot of the big events. It was the weather was just torrential. That was a wild day. Pete and Pete and my bike shorts like five different times. <laughs> only, only seriously, only way I could warm up was like, and I needed to go to the bathroom. I'm like, well, this seems like a pretty good option. <laughs> your sport is insane, by the way. It's, cra like, it's, it's crazy. So crazy. It's crazy. There's a passage in the book after you win Worlds, and it's this great scene, and your mom's there, and the quote says, it seemed like the end of something for my mother and me, a finish line. There would be no more naysayers telling us we wouldn't amount to anything, no more concerns about bills or scrabbling for equipment and plane tickets. Maybe it was the end of the long, hard climb out of childhood. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot to overcome for both of you. Yeah. I mean, by the way, Sally Jenkins helped me write that book, and she's just, just hearing her words again. Wow. Yeah. So winning my life changed forever. Obviously, you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, only once a year do they have a world champion in cycling. And, and it's very prestigious and very historic. You wear a special jersey for the entire year. So you, you have this honor that you carry around the rainbow jersey for 12 months. And so with that comes all the stuff, you know, contracts get renegotiated, definitely changed our lives. So you're kind of sitting on top of the world and then you, uh, you start getting sick three years later kind of started with some bronchitis and. Oh, I had an excuse for everything. I mean, I yeah. had blurry vision, you know, a constant cough, which ended up turning into a bloody cough. But as an, you know, as an athlete, I had an excuse for everything. I, 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 you know, I chalked the headaches up to partying with my buds the night before the blurry vision. I'm going to soon need readers. I mean, I was diagnosed as the world knows with testicular cancer. And, and this was not when young men are diagnosed or, or feel like they have that issue, they go normally go very early because of the swelling and mm -hmm. the pain. Mm -hmm. I ignored this swelling and pain for so long. And so I was like, ah, you know, I sit on a bike all day long and <laughs> nobody sits on a bike as much as we do. So it's, that's gotta be what it is. But I also didn't tell anybody. I didn't, 
until the very, very end when I, that episode of coughing up the blood, that was the first time I actually called somebody and said, Hey, I don't know if this is normal. This was shocking to me because I think the world knows about the testicular cancer. I think that there's a, a really good general understanding of that. I don't think most people realize how serious mm-hmm. this got, that it that it metastasized to the lungs and the brain. And I've seen interviews with your doctors who said, yeah, we told him that maybe he had a chance of survival, but we didn't really believe that. You were a goner. I mean, this was so serious. You cough up a bunch of blood and then finally you're like, okay, I need to see someone. Well, I called my neighbor who was a plastic surgeon, Dr. Rick Parker, That's wonderful, right. wonderful man. But he, he is enough of a doctor to know that I shouldn't have been coughing up blood. Yeah. He said, okay, now I'm a plastic surgeon. So you, we need to get you to Dr. Jim Reeves, who was a great local urologist in Austin. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I mean, that was, man, after that, it moved uh, warp speed. So fast. They had you scheduled for surgery like the next morning, right? <laughs> next morning, 7 a.m. I said, well, there goes the second opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was right. Was that the day that you found that you, they looked at your lungs and saw that or was that they, after? They, yeah, they did the chest x-ray right after they did the ultrasound. So in in a, almost an instant, your whole life changes. Oh, yeah. I, I think the thing we forget is this was 1996 and so... And we didn't have information. Different in 1996, there was, you know, Google, you know, Larry and Sergey were, fuck, who knows, maybe not even born yet. <laughs> so we just didn't have information. And I'm an info guy. I'm a data guy. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, who's going to tell me what to do here or what questions to ask or what my chances are? And there just wasn't, there wasn't any information. Go through the order of events here. So you have the surgery, they remove your testicle, then they realize that, that, that it's in your brain too. They didn't realize that until I got to Indiana. And, and that's fine, actually. I, I needed time to recover from the initial surgery. So then I had a little bit of a recovery, started chemotherapy, then made my way to Larry Einhorn in Indiana. And at that point, you know, they sort of reviewed the chart. And of course, the headaches and the blurry vision to them was troublesome. So they we went ahead and did a, an MRI of the brain, which popped up, you know, of course, a couple spots up there. I'd already started chemo. Typically, chemotherapy won't cross what they call the blood-brain barrier. Or somehow, the chemo was able to pass the blood-brain barrier. Dr. Scott Shapiro did that surgery. I was, I was almost relieved when it got to the brain. I was like, fuck, man. I can, I'm following this path. And I'm like, all right, there's nothing <laughs> on top of my head. Like, nobody's calling me to say my halo has cancer. Like, it's like, that's it. Like, that's it, man. We know everything. Let's go. Let's get on top of this. And no more bad news. So there's another quote in your book I want to refer to. You write that when you got your diagnosis, what went through your head first and foremost is not that I'm going to lose my life. It was that I won't be able to race ever again. I had started with nothing. My mom was a secretary in Plano, Texas, but on my bike, I had become something. It's hard to go back that far, but I wouldn't think that way today. I just assumed that with high dose chemotherapy and multiple surgeries and time away and that I wouldn't get that back. The thing, the one thing that I'd worked so hard for. Yeah. But you really launched your own attack on cancer. I mean, you got so informed, you did so much research and, and I, and you had, and you maintained that mindset, even through all those brutal rounds of chemo, you're really looking at chemo and beating cancer as the thing, the sport, the the You're next right. thing to the overcome. Yeah. Right. Tumor, my tumor markers were my scoreboard. Right. 
Uh, I think that mindset, I think a lot of people, the research I did, a lot of people read that book and realized you can fight cancer. Well, yeah, I, I, of course. And I was lucky because every, you know, once we got going, the scoreboard was favorable. I mean, if I'm one team and cancer's the other team, like we were putting points on the board. <laughs> yeah. And, but there are a lot of people that get those, you know, whether it's x-ray back or tumor markers that it is going the other way. Mm-hmm. I never had one episode like that. I knew that the chemo was working and the doctors were, they, they you know, I sort of asked them before, like, how are we going to measure success? Like, what do you need to see to give me some feeling that we are winning? And so they actually, they called it one log drop off. So one of my tumors markers uh, was like, you know, hundred thousand, which it should be two or less than two. So they wanted to see a log drop off. So the next set of blood work should be 10,000 and then 1000 and then 100. And so the whole time it was way ahead of that. And so I was like, man, this, this shit's working. But chemo is hell. Yeah. I don't recommend that. I look forward. I look forward to the day when nobody has to go to chemotherapy. I think we'll get there at some point, but at the end it was hell. It started out pretty mild. I was like, ah, you sure we're doing this right? You sure (laughs) maybe we should up the doses? And then it got rougher and then it it just, it just compounds. It got, got super rough. It was while you were in the hospital going through chemo that you had the idea to start the foundation. So some general idea of what okay. we did. Look, I didn't know what it would meant to start a nonprofit and what, what we would necessarily do or, or if we could raise money or where would we give that money to if we raised money. So we, we were so innocent and just clueless. But yeah, that's the, it, was, it was really started at that time, just at a table in Austin, Texas, a dinner table. It originally was called the Lance Armstrong Foundation, mm-hmm. which morphed into Livestrong. But you just felt compelled to do something to get involved. Yeah. You know, it was maybe the stigma around testicular cancer is, has softened. But back then, I mean, it was, I was like, man, this sucks. Like, I'm going to, what a thing you got to tell the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you're a young man. Imagine being a 15 year old kid, 17 year old kid in high school. So we didn't know if we would do some stuff around education, awareness. There was also in Texas, you know, Texas, the great state of Texas, whoever reviews all textbooks that go into any public school in Texas, they would not allow any images of testicular self-exam. Really? For, for testicular cancer. So I thought, well, that's, that's some bullshit right there. Yeah. Maybe we can get that changed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, those were just thoughts and ideas that we had, but it is crazy. So... You beat cancer, you fall in love. Where are you with cycling during this time? Do you think that it's a possibility to return? Do you want to return? How does your body feel? Oh, I, I wanted to return. Body was getting better. It got, it got better pretty quickly. But cycling doesn't, you know, it's not a question of what you want to do mm-hmm. and how you feel. It's a question of what the sport will allow you to do. And it's a team sport and you know, it's almost like car racing, you know, so the team has to they recruit riders or hire riders. And if there's no team out there, then, then you're not, you're not going back. And, and so your agent was out there trying to find you a team and find you sponsors. You're, you're frail at this time still, and you don't have any hair. You don't have any eyebrows. I thought, God, this is going to be easy. What a great story. Right. I was all into the story like this. Nobody was really into the story. 
That's crazy. So there, there, yeah, there wasn't any. Postal was, which is where I ended up, was mm-hmm. the only team that showed some interest, and they even were not that interested. It was definitely a long shot. The thing that I kept thinking about is it's hard enough to heal your body after cancer. has to be really hard to heal your mind, too. Mm-hmm. You know? It causes you to reevaluate everything. Yeah. Now that I'm clear of cancer, because I knew that I had, especially 1996, you know, as advanced as it was, I had raced for many, many months with cancer. But when I was diagnosed, I'd just done the Olympic Games a month before that. So I'm thinking, God, when this shit gets out of there, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be unbeatable. (laughs) And so that's where the mind comes in, because while physically you are clear, mentally you get in the races and it's still hard sport. It's still a, a team game. It's still complicated. And, and I didn't win right away. And so then the mental part comes in. It's like, ugh, I thought I was just going to win immediately. And so I, I cracked a little and kind of bailed on the sport a little bit in the spring of 1998 and said, screw it. Went back home to Austin. And I, I just said, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to retire. But ended up getting talked into going back and finishing the year Mm -hmm. Just go back, finish the year. You have a contract, honor the contract, just write it out Mm -hmm. and then retire. No problem. And so I I said, okay, I'll do that. And I said, but the deal I made with myself was the only thing that I have to do. So I don't have to win. The only thing I have to do is finish every race. And sure enough, guess what happens? You start winning. (laughs) With with the goal that all I want to do is finish. I just start winning and winning and winning and just like result after result after result. I'm like, wow. I, I ended up not retiring at the end. Yeah, of no, you sure didn't. <laughs> and with the performance that you're giving, everyone's like, you're ready for the tour. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. And so it was 99. Yep. Right. When you first won the tour. Yep. Can you talk to us a little bit about the characteristics of the tour? I mean, it's so grueling and and it's so political and so tactical and also so dangerous. I, you saw one of your teammates die. I mean, can mm-hmm. you just give a little color to what the Tour de France is like? Oh, it's it's all of those things. I mean, I think it's gotten better on the safety side, but technology's gotten better and of course when we raced back then, we didn't wear helmets, so that's so crazy. Helpful. Yeah, it's helped a lot. But it's there are 200 guys going down the road elbow to elbow. And no matter what the condition is, if it's wet, if it's dry, doesn't matter. Everybody wants to be at the front of the field. And so it, it leads to this fight and that leads to crashes and it's grueling. And tactically, there are 20 different sets of interest out there, right? So everybody has their own tactical plan. It's not a head-to-head event, right? So you're trying to manage what your own tactics are, but also trying to figure out what 19 other teams have up their sleeves. I tell people it's sort of like a, a chess match meets a political race, meets a marathon, meets NASCAR, just because <laughs> there's so much there's yeah. so much rubbing and positioning in the group. If you look at the entire history of cycling, this was a sport of criminals and bandits. We're now we're going back well over a hundred years 
I mean, we thought taking EPO was bad. These pricks were getting on trains to get an advantage or holding ropes behind cars or, or behind <laughs> anything that could pull them along. It's been a bandito sport for, for a sure. long time. I, th- I actually think it's doing a lot better now, but it was the wild, wild west. Yeah, it's such a complicated, layered, yeah. insane sport. <laughs> <laughs> and I get why you loved it. So you win the tour and then you get like super famous. It got a, it got a little out of hand. It's got a little. I mean, you're like hosting I had, it. I had, I had no idea. I just wasn't aware of how big this thing was getting. Mm-hmm. And maybe I didn't want to allow myself to think about that or be aware, but I had no idea. If I look back on it, I was in rarefied air. And, no question. You, know, you can look at some of my peers in, in other sports. And, you know, back then it was, you know, Tiger and Jordan. And, but in spaces that people like Phelps and Brady occupy now, I was in that air. And I had no idea. And really? so, no. That's no. so interesting. And it, you know, again, it could have been a, a mechanism that I just didn't want to know, but it also might have been good to know. Because, you know, when you're in that space, man, you you have to, you're held to a completely different standard as you should be. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, either took advantage of it or just didn't recognize it, didn't respect it. I was sort of checked out on that. But there were really good things that happened from how famous you were. I mean, Mm -hmm. Live Strong raises half a billion dollars for cancer. Yep, That's an insane number. Yeah, I think it's safe to say probably the most effective cancer fighting organization in the world at that time. Yeah. First, I think first and foremost was a cancer story, then was which was massive. Then it was also uh, a sports story, which was also massive. I'll never forget one year, one of the earlier, and then probably 99, I called back, talked to my agent, and I'm like, man, is, any, is this shit even in the paper? He says, is it in the paper? I said, yeah, like a... Like in, in the back of the sports or anything, are they writing any articles? He's like, dude, <laughs> it's on the cover of every single newspaper, not the sports section, every newspaper. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. Yeah, transcendent sports. Yeah, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> but you were no doing clue. all the things too. You were on Letterman, you were hosting SNL. Yeah, after the tour. Yeah. Were you happy yeah. during that time? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm happier now, but I was are you? I was happy. Oh, hell yeah. Oh God. <laughs> not even close. I was happy because, I mean, it was, I was having a good time. I was, I was, I felt like I was doing the job that I was hired to do. We definitely were helping literally millions of people around the world through Livestrong. So yeah, it was a good time. (laughs) Okay. So you win seven times in a row the tour Mm -hmm. and then you decide to retire in 2005. Were you just, were you done? <laughs> well, I mean, you can, I was. What else can you do? <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was old. I mean, the, when I won, I have to go back and look and it might've changed in years since, but when I won in 05, that was, I think I was at that point, the oldest winner in sort of what they consider to be modern cycling. So cycling post-World War II. And I just, seven was enough. I was ready to retire. Yeah. And should have should have stayed retired. Yeah. So you, you retired from 2005 to 2009. Did you enjoy that time or did you get bored right away? I had a hell of a time. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, we were we were crazy. <laughs> we were we didn't miss any parties. We were the first ones there and the last to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, it was fun. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> so why yeah. did you come back? I don't know. I mean, it, I did miss the competition. I missed the grind. I missed the training. Yeah. I missed the Sufferfest. And 
And I also thought I could, because I still watched cycling. I still followed it. I thought I can take these guys. I mean, the guy, this guy that wins the tour one of those years, I'm like, come on, this guy couldn't carry my suitcase. But that's all, those are all really stupid reasons to go do something just because you don't think one of your old competitors can't carry your suitcase. <laughs> like, that's not a reason to move back to Europe, to jump back in, to expose yourself, which of course I did. That's not a reason. And those are really, really bad reasons. And I deserved what I got. LeBlanc, the director of the tour, writes mm -hmm. you a letter and says, yeah. don't come back. Yeah, you are the bridge to the past. And he's right. He's, he's, he was very right. It broke my heart to read it. He wrote it in what is, it was an op-ed. It was in a, the equivalent of France's New York Times. What was he talking about? I think cycling felt like at that point they had turned the corner on the fight against doping and that a lot of people had either retired or been banned from the sport and that by me going back, it would just bring all of this back up, mm -hmm. which he's absolutely right. It did. Doesn't mean I liked reading it. And I really, really liked him. I've always liked him. Still do. I mean, I would, if that guy called me and wanted to sit down for a coffee or beer, I would sprint. He was the best director of the Tour de France, probably in history. He, he was an iconic figure. And so it, it, I knew when he wrote that, while well, I was like, God, what do you have to say that for? Mm. He was, a, this was a real man. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't, this wasn't just some Jake Leg journalist who writes bullshit. This, this was Jean-Marie LeBlanc. Mm -hmm. But I was also committed and I was, you know, everybody was making plans and the sponsors were engaged. We already had seen the positive effects for Livestrong. And I'm like, God, I am in on this thing, dude. But I feel like I should listen to Jean-Marie LeBlanc. I couldn't pull out. I didn't have the strength. Yeah. I didn't have the honor to pull out. And so I kept going. Of course, at this point, I'm with Anna and she's pregnant and we're reading this together. And, and I said, this is a mistake. You said that? Yeah. Yeah. I was sitting at like a general store out in West Texas, outside of Marfa, Texas, one of my favorite places in the world. She had never asked me like, so, you know, that's, a lot of the stuff is out there. Is this true? And she's not that type of lady. She, uh, she's just a very supportive person. And I just said this, I, I got to get out. Mm -hmm. They're, they're going to get me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think at that point she figured out she didn't need to ask many questions, but I was just like, I want to pull the plug so bad, but I, I just didn't have the, the you didn't know how to the, put it back in the box. So yeah, all the wheels I mean, were God, and look at it in hindsight. I could have said, I guess I said anything. Yeah. I guess I crashed my bike today and I have a knee injury and, and made me reconsider and it's off. Like you could have said anything or by the way, you also could have said, you know what? I've spent some time thinking about this and I read what Jean-Marie LeBlanc wrote to me. And while I don't agree with all of it, I agree with him mm -hmm. mostly, you know, mm -hmm. or you, you, you could have worded it. He said, he's right. I'll set this out. There is nothing wrong with saying that. No, that is an honorable thing to say, but Pushed on. then the shit show really started. When did the formal investigation start? Oh, God, that's anybody's guess. There were actually three parts to this so-called investigation. What started out uh, actually as a criminal investigation, mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm speaking to somebody that knows how know our about, system... Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, know, you know how our system works. This started out as a criminal investigation spearheaded by an investigator who had gone after Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Marion Jones, Balco, all of that stuff. And is Complete this Nowitzki? Start. Nabisky, a complete mm -hmm. star fucker. He, he doesn't, he didn't care about cleaning up sports. He wanted his name in the paper, which fine, whatever. But that's how it started. Then that case was dropped, the criminal case. Then the U U.S. Anti-Doping Agency picked it up. And then they, with the with all their power and, mm -hmm. and weight, 
that that was uh, that was the one, and then uh, that really ended everything. And then, of course, there was a civil case because mm-hmm. Postal was was our sponsor. Yeah, it was a lot of litigation, a lot of lot of lawyers. I mean, I thought I had a lot of lawyers. Oh. This is insane. So, so <laughs> Pat McQuaid from UCI calls you and says, "This is happening," right? He he got wind that that there was. We it had been a couple of years of the criminal investigation, so yeah. we knew that that a grand jury had been impaneled. So th- this wasn't in secret, and as part of it, you know, grand juries are not entirely secret. You're allowed to walk out and talk about what you just testified mm-hmm. to. So we were getting bits and pieces, but that took years. The USADA piece is what McQuaid called me about. Okay, this was in shit 2012. And I'm thinking how, and he was, he thought this, he said, how, this can't be you, Lance, because assuming, you know, I was clean in the comeback, which I was, which mm-hmm. not the USADA doesn't believe, but it, I was, but the in statute of limitations, well, when it was 2009, 10 and 11, but I'm thinking there's, there's, there's nothing there. And 2005 What's was the statute seven years or, mm-hmm. but this is, listen, you know how these things work. There are ways to massage and manipulate statutes no and, and legal language and, and precedent, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it didn't matter. I mean, you cannot win that fight. And nor did I deserve to win. I mean, I was I was guilty. I wasn't I wasn't guilty in recent time. But if we all want to go back and look at the, the things that happened twenty years ago in any sport, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. When it actually comes to a head, the fallout is crazy. It's swift. It's crazy. severe. Yeah. In forty eight hours. All your sponsors drop you. You get asked, and I think this is a heartbreaker, to step down as chairman of Livestrong. It all falls apart like so oh, yeah. fast. Immediately. I mean, I, I don't even do you do you directly go into survival mode? Do you go into like Lance mode where you're just like, I'm gonna take this on, I'm gonna beat this, or are you having the dark night of the soul? I mean, what's happening? What's going on in your head? Well, almost and the other thing that happened right on the heels of that were the lawsuits. I mean, they started all of the people that had ever paid me, right. you know, all of these contracts had some clause that said, you know, I'll play by the rules or, you know, they all lined up shit. They were around the block wanting their money back. So that's when I was just thrown into more litigation settlements, depositions, and just kind of had just, I was in the business of stroking checks all the while, you know, thinking, they're going to take everything. Mm-hmm. I will never work again. Mm-hmm. And I have five kids. Yeah. It was heavy. And and to be able to even sit here today, I never thought I would be sitting here today. You didn't? In the position. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. I didn't think that the world would give me an opening. I didn't think I would necessarily work again. But I was like, I am going to have to figure out a way to support my family. That's all I care about. I don't need all the shit that I had before. I don't need the jets and the houses and the good times and the parties. I don't need any of that. I just, if, if you can just promise me somehow, some way, some special God that my kids will be okay, then I'm good with that. But I didn't see a path. Mm-hmm. Well, you made it. You had to create, well, you created I, your own. <laughs> I did. I did eventually, but it, it. I'm not so sure the world gave that to you. I'm pretty positive know. that you created that. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's been this thing about it. It's been, I always use Oprah as kind of D-Day, right? Okay. So let's, let's work off of that. That was 2013. That was January of 2013. The announcements and the sponsors leaving. That was kind of, you know, sometime in 2012. But once Oprah happened, that's when 
my impression was that most people said, okay, fuck this guy. But I didn't, it's not so much I wasn't going to quit. I I wasn't going to fall apart. I refused to fall apart because I, all of my rivals and guys that I've raced with in the trenches and who I love dearly, many, many of them put in this position, absolutely fell apart. No question. And I was like, I can't, I don't want to fall apart. I don't want my kids to see me fall apart. And so I am going to hang in here. You know, at some point, maybe somebody will say, okay, go run a play, Lance. I'll throw you the ball. And if they do, I ain't never quitting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I will run forever. You know, you were gracious enough to come on my podcast a couple of years ago. The podcast was in so many ways the first time since it all that I could play offense and or that I could reemerge. And so that, you know, one thing leads to another, to another, to another, and and you know, built things back okay. But yeah, it, it, there were boy, many, many days where I was like, what am I going to do? I can completely relate to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. But yours is amplified and exacerbated so much. And I, I get that now, having a kid, I can't even imagine. Because mm-hmm. it was dark for me and I was a, I was solo. Right. I can't imagine what that's like, knowing that these five children rely on you. I mean... Who knows if I, if I were, like I had never had kids, you know, maybe I would have allowed myself to fall apart, as I said, but I, it was the thing for me, like they, that really was the most important. And I, and, and I wanted to obviously support them, support the family, but also I wanted them to see their dad, that their dad had not given up, fallen apart, crawled in the corner, cried, you know, gotten addicted, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to see their dad as, as a guy who hung in there. I mean, how are you not... So there was this $100 million lawsuit with the feds and your former teammate, Landis. <laughs> yeah. Oof, I had... That that one was rough. Yeah. For me. Well, look, it, 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 none of it makes a lot of sense, frankly. But at the end of the day, the, the, the case shouldn't have been brought. But at the end of the day, especially, they knew they didn't have a case. Mm-hmm. And so we settled the case... But I mean, all in, how much did you get sued for? for with well, all the, the whole cases? thing, the all in. With all the total cases, cost, yeah. And, and if you include guaranteed income, so mm-hmm. I had some deals that were for life. All in, the, the, the downfall cost $111 million. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot of money. Were you completely broke? Was there a moment where you just had nothing? No, no, because I invested in Uber at a valuation. Yeah, of so that's the story I want you to tell. Because they that's were committed an... to me, they were committed to the case, and so that was a, a big help. And then the other was the Uber card, which that's amazing. If they would have known about that, the, the the settlement, the price of settlement would have gone up significantly. And that press didn't come out until after it was settled, and we didn't want them to know that. So you had invested in Uber before their IPO. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I, well, I, and technically just so we're clear, I invested in uh, a guy I'd gotten to know, started a small fund, a guy named Chris Saka. I know Chris. And his fund was called Lowercase Capital. And I invested in him early, early on. And so he, credit really go to him. He invested in Uber in Travis's friends and family round. Mm-hmm. So $3.7 oh, wow. million. And then he made, you know, additional investments. And then, no, no, this is 10 years before the IPO. So that really, Chris, Chris and lowercase really saved my bacon. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. That's awesome. It's so incredible 
to sort of look at where you are now. Uh, you know, cycling made a public statement. We want nothing to do with you, but but you have the top rated cycling podcast, which is bigger than news these days, right? And a lot of and a lot of yeah. ways. The forward, st- and that's yeah. Well, that's a, the original show was the forward, which of course you came on, and mm-hmm. and but I didn't want to talk about cycling. These mm-hmm. people said we're erasing you. Well, I wanted to erase them. Mm-hmm. And so I refused in many ways to talk about cycling, although I still would ride for exercise. I didn't watch cycling. I didn't want to talk about cycling. And then one year I just pivoted and said, okay, fuck it. Let's do a cycling podcast. And that's the one. That's actually gotten, that show's much, much bigger. It's big. It's huge uh, now. And and they, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it is, it's done well. I, you know, the sport still says they haven't changed what they said. They, just because the show is big and the following is massive, nobody in the sport has said, well, since he's now got this huge show, like we want to talk about him again. No, they, they hold their line on on what they did. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't need them. But you made your own road. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. But th- this is, thank God we live in the generation we live in today, mm-hmm. because if, if, I would not have go back 10 years, 20 years, you know, the creator economy or this space of mm-hmm. creating content, it just didn't exist. Looking back, it, it was pretty straightforward, but it was a moment in time that, that, you know, it provided me the opportunity. The thing I love about it is, and it's more of a macro view of my life. Like I just really don't give a shit what anybody says. Right. And, and I'm not, I don't work for anybody. I work for me and I work for my family. And outside of that, I don't kind of don't care what you think. And I kind of don't care what you say. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to be real. Mm-hmm. And so the show has that, it has a, a, a more of an irreverent mm-hmm. twist, which has become, you know, th- we're not the only ones who do that. But the irony is not lost on you, right? Like, I mean, there's two categories. One, you sort of became exiled as this person not to trust. And now you have a VC fund and people trust you with your with their money. And right. two, you have a, a monster top-rated sports cast on the tour. And I think that I think that's hugely powerful because we live in a time of cancel culture. Yeah. And we live in a time where we seem to deny human beings of making errors, which is crazy because there's no such thing as not making mistakes. There's just growth. Mm-hmm. And I think your story is super inspiring because it really demonstrates that you can have agency over your life no matter what happens to you. Right. You know, and no yeah, matter and how many people try to take that from you. Yeah. It's always, you know, before the fallout, I used to speak all the time. And that obviously all went away. There is more and more interest from folks in the, you know, in the business world that just want to hear that story because they know that life isn't perfect. And, and you know, TBD on cancel culture, you know, I don't mm-hmm. look, I, I think certain people did some, just some, truly heinous things mm-hmm. and probably don't deserve to ever come back. But there's some other ones that I don't know that it's totally fair to just erase them from anything. And so, but it's, it's, it, what I was saying was these groups are now, and I'm sort of back out on the road or the circuit, so to speak, because they want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Enough time has passed that they know about the shows. They know about the fund and then how that fund is doing. And they, they can look at our portfolio and see that we're, we're clearly onto something. Mm-hmm. And then they reflect back and go, well, wait a minute. I thought this guy was never supposed to ever get the ball back. Mm-hmm. Like what the fuck happened? Mm-hmm. So there's now this renewed interest of like, could you come out here and tell us 
just how you did that? Yeah, of course. That's compelling. And I also think like, look, you've taken responsibility for... Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, I mean... I don't want anybody listening today to think that I have any... I'm, I'm not... You know, I'm not bitter about that. I think all of those experiences, whether they're fair or not fair, doesn't matter. They've happened. I created most of uh, of them for myself. It really just goes to just knowing truly what you have. Mm-hmm. So obviously you have your closest friends and family, but just knowing who's on that bus. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, it took a seismic shift to sort of shake out a lot of people that were just hanger honors. And then this look around the room and go, wow, there's a lot of people gone. <laughs> but damn, there's still a lot of people here. And there's a lot of people here that I didn't expect to be here. Mm-hmm. And that is amazing. I think it's fascinating to hear that Lance is happier now, out of the spotlight, with far less wealth, and no longer winning tours. I hear this story so often, and I have experienced a version of it myself. The things we think would make life perfect, money, status, power, often become prisons of their own makings, and we lose ourselves and our way trying to prop them up. For me, and just as we heard from Lance, sometimes we have to lose everything to regain ourselves, to remember it's the small and simple things that helm us, our families, our true unfettered passions, and living an authentic, honest life. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. Next time on Torched, we'll peel back decades of history with Russian athletes and international watchdogs to find out how Russia's elaborate state-sponsored doping regime has become virtually unstoppable. When you have a regulator that's not using its powers to regulate, it can cycle individuals in and out and no one's ever sanctioned. And everyone's above the law. That's next time on Torched. Torched.